0: Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. If you have a Bible with you, take it out. The passages that we're going to be studying from today come to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and as such, it is, if, it is as if the Lion of Judah and the Lamb himself is here speaking to us. So um, our first passage is going to be from Leviticus 1, verses 1 through 9. Our second will be Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. And finally, Mark 1, verses 40 through 42. Leviticus 1, 1 through 9. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord... You shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he will offer a male without blemish. He will bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that it may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons the priest, shall bring the blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. That is at the the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering, cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire to the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire of the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest will burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6 Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed. For our iniquities. He was upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And finally, Mark chapter one, verses forty through forty-two. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he, Jesus, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, there's, there's a video going around that um, these, you know, I guess these scientists have created these glasses that help people that are colorblind, people that have previously never seen color and they put these glasses on and they're able to, for the first time, see color. And it's a moving video because these people are seeing the whole world in a different light, in a different context, in a different way. And, and really, our, our hope through this series that we've been in now, this is our uh, fourth week, is to do that for you. I hope it is to help you see the world in uh, a new light, in a new way, through a new lens. We've called the series "Understanding Everything," and really, what we're trying to do in this series is help you to understand the story of Scripture. I don't know where you are in your study of Scripture. Uh, a lot of people kind of see the Bible as uh, you know uh, various stories that were told over a period of time but but really the the Bible as it is told by God as it has been inspired by the Holy Spirit of God is one grand narrative. We call it a meta-narrative. This 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 long story that God tells and that if you understand this story and if you understand how the parts of the story work together and and are really telling the whole story then through this story You can understand the rest of life. You can understand everything. And so if you've been with us uh, over these weeks, the first week we talked about the beginning of the story, how the story began, how everything began, how God uh, began to create and we said we we use this term that the church fathers like to use uh periachorus that the, the 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 father the son and the holy spirit god in three persons together as they moved together as they had rhythm and unity and love for one another it was it was as the church fathers said the great dance and god in this essence of a great dance the dance began to overflow and god began to create and he began to speak into being all the things that we know that exist but he didn't just create the world, he just create humans, he created us in such a way that we could actually know him, that we could join in with him, in the dance, that we could be one with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enjoying his presence, his company, his creation. But of course, as we said, in the second week, all of that was, was marred, all of that was distorted when the man and the woman began dancing to a different song, they they begin going their own way as we said that week that sin is when man puts himself in the place of god we don't trust the rhythm of god we don't trust the order of god we break away and 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 from that day to this we have seen the effect of separation from god we have seen the effect when man does not know the presence of god very early in the story after that we see pain we see hardship We see hardship at work. We see hardship in child birthing and rearing. And and can anybody identify with this? You know, in in the very next chapter, we see jealousy. Uh, Can anybody identify with that? We see anger. We see bitterness. As you continue to go in the scripture, we see division. We see rage. We see murder. We see sexual immorality and and all of the rest in this, this chorus of effects that is coming from distance from God, that is coming from not knowing the power of God and not knowing the presence of God. We see great, great pain. And like, this is so applicable to us because I stand before a room of people who are no strangers to pain and no strangers to the effect of separation from God. Some of you come in here today in great pain, in great sadness. Some of you, there are people in your life that you haven't even really talked to in years that are still affecting you? There is still bitterness over a pain that they caused years ago that still has, is shaping you. you you've, maybe some of you have experienced abuse. Maybe some of you have, maybe this year, some of you have experienced a breakup with someone. And you just don't know why. You know, you've given so much to them. And here you are, and it's Christmas time, right? And everybody's in love except you. Some of you walk in here today and, it's, and you, you actually, if you have to be honest, you don't want to say this, you, you know, y'all, look, y'all look great, by the way, but you, on the inside, you don't feel great. You feel ashamed. And, and some of you, it's even a struggle to come to church because you don't like being around all these good people that might know you, might find out. If they knew about me, I, I wouldn't like that. Some of you are here today and you've experienced some great loss this year, loss of a loved one, loss of somebody that you had poured your life into. Some of you are here and you're, you're sick. You're, you're, you're genuinely sick. You, you have some disease, something, and it's frustrating when you're sick. Maybe you don't know what the cure is or maybe it's just causing you incredible, incredible pain. Pain, it's all around us. So how do we get healing? <laughs> how do we get healing if, if this is such good news If we can understand everything, then then where's the good news in this? Well, we'll get to that. But last week, if you were here, we talked about love. And and we talked about God's love. And it's different than any kind of love that you understand. Most of the love that we understand is what we said last week. It's marketplace love, right? It's it's love that comes with an exchange. It's a word we use to describe an exchange of goods. You do this for me. I do this for you. We love one another. And it's really uh, a word that we use to describe a deal that we've made, not really love in its purest form. Some of you even have this kind of love for God. I'll go to church, I'll serve you, I'll try to behave, but remember, I get heaven at the end of the thing. I don't go to hell, right? We got a deal here, right? You're going to bless me in this life. You're going to take care of me. You're going to give me this deal. I'll do these things, God, if you come through for me on the other side, but what we see in scripture is not that kind of conditional love that most of us are used to. What we see in scripture, the kind of love that God has is an unconditional love. It's a covenantal love. We looked at last week in our passage in Deuteronomy chapter seven, God says to Israel, I love you because I love you. But this week, I wanna move on from this. And I wanna move on how then, do we experience healing? Maybe some of you know the love of God. You've understood this unconditional love. And and, and I just want to say as an aside, you you can't really become a Christian until you understand that God's love for you is not conditioned. You know, Christianity, as many of you have heard me say, it's the only club that you can't get into with a good resume. You, You have to have a better resume to get in or you're not really in. You know, so I loved Abby, for some of over here last week, you saw Abby's uh, testimony before her baptism, and she said, look, I thought I was perfect, and I had to realize that I wasn't perfect. I had to realize that a lot of my perceived righteousness was actually pride, and that's when the gospel made sense to me. So I just want to say, if you're coming here and you, you don't feel good enough to kind of be here, then you're the only person that's really welcome here, <laughs> because that's the boat that we're all in. That's, that's the way in. Those are the kinds of people that God does love, that God does pursue. And by virtue of you even being here and hearing this sermon, it's, it's evidence that God loves you. But how, if God loves us, if he's calling us to himself, if he's calling us to himself in Christ like we talk about, how do we experience healing? I'm talking about real healing, where our hearts are healed, where we, don't, where we can overcome pain, where we can overcome sin, where we can overcome all of these things. And that's what we want to talk about today, healing. What we learn from from scripture that that is very interesting is that God begins to bring healing when his presence is near, right? So pain, sin, sickness, all those things I talked about earlier, they're all the effects of God's presence being distant, of, of, of people not near the presence of God. But where healing begins to come is when God's presence comes near to the people. And we see this pattern all throughout the Bible. Um, you know, if you've noticed, a lot of these sermons are from the Old Testament. And, and because so much, it's, you really can't, if you don't understand the Old Testament, you can't really get Jesus right. You can't really get Christianity right. You can't really get any of the Bible right. at all, because so many of the patterns, so much of the function begins with this part of the story. This is a big part of the story. And this pattern of healing through God's presence obviously begins in the Old Testament. We 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 know it to be true at Christmas time, right? I mean, what is Christmas? Christmas is the celebration of God coming near to us, right? Emmanuel, God is with us. God's presence in Christ comes to be near to us. And what does Jesus do when he comes? He starts to heal people. He starts to there's evidence of the presence of God being near to people. How does the Bible end, right? You know, the end of the Bible, you might expect it to say at the end of the Bible, and the dwelling place at the end of all things, the dwelling place of man will be with God. But that's not what the Bible says, is it? How does the Bible end? It says that the dwelling place of God will be with man. The, the pattern of God coming near to man is not just in the middle of the Bible, it's at the end of the Bible, but it's also at the beginning of the Bible. And in the beginning of the story, after Adam and Eve fall out of fellowship with God, after they are separated from the presence of God, what do we see? We see the presence of God coming near to man. There is a pattern. And so uh, just to kind of in terms of review, there was a man named Abraham, right? And Abraham Uh, found favor with God. Why did Abraham find favor with God? Was Abraham sinless? Was Abraham great? No, God unconditionally, as we talked about last week, began to love this man, Abraham. And he came near to him and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you great and through you, the whole world will be blessed. And eventually he gave, it's a long story, but eventually he gave Abraham a son named Isaac. And he gave Isaac two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And this this family of Abraham began to grow. And these 12 sons had children. And they became the 12 tribes of Israel. But of course, as we see in scripture, and as we see with real life, there was a problem. There was a famine in the land. But God, in this bizarre and amazing way, had already provided for the tribes of Israel by sending one of the sons against his will into Egypt. And of course, God used him, and well, this is another story for another day, a guy named Joseph, to provide for his family, to provide a safe place for this people, this blessed people of God. And while they were there in Egypt, great things happened. You know, we we know, some of you know about the end of the story of Egypt where the people of Israel were enslaved. But before that, the people were really blessed and they grew and they lived in the best part of the land. And about 70 people we think that went over, theologians believe, became about 2 million people eventually. Just enormous growth for this people that was being blessed by God. But of course, eventually these people did fall into slavery. They were under the burden of slavery in Egypt, but God in his kindness loved them. He called them out. This is, let me just reread our passage from last week. This is verse 8 of Deuteronomy 7. Why did God save them? It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And even back in the book of Deuteronomy in the book of Exodus where we hear this story, God is already talking about redemption and salvation, the same kind of themes that we see throughout the whole Bible from the house, uh, from the hand of the king of Egypt. God was proving that he loved this people, that these were his people, that they were a people of his own possession. God had saved them. If there's anything that you need to get out of the book of of Exodus it's God saved his people but they were not yet a holy people I can just read <laughs> read the Old Testament God did not save Israel because they were holy and if any of you know the Lord God did not save you because you were holy so how is God going to take this unholy Israel and heal them and make them clean you already know the answer He's going to do it by his presence. His presence came to be with them. And this is really what the second half, the first half of Exodus is about the salvation of Israel. The second half of Exodus is about God's presence coming to be with Israel. But there is a problem. And here's the problem. Is that God is holy. God is perfectly holy. God is perfectly righteous. Righteous. And if he was going to come and dwell among a people, which he did, we see he comes to dwell among them in a place called the Tent of Meeting. Lauren read about that earlier when we read the passage of Leviticus. God, who is holy, is going to dwell among the people in the Tent of Meeting. But there's a problem. God is holy, and the people are not Holy. <laughs> The people are sinful. So how is God going to dwell among the people? This is a big question of the Old Testament. How is God going to dwell among the people and not kill them? Now you might say to yourself, well, hold on, Jason. Now that's part of my problem with the Old Testament. Why does it matter? Why why does God's holiness kill people? There's this really peculiar story. Um, So this is later in the story. But there's this peculiar scene where the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God dwelled among the people. It had been taken away from the people of Israel by the Philistines, and this new King David was bringing it back into Israel. But he was bringing it back in on a cart. It was not supposed to be carried on a cart, but I'll save the details for another day. But it was being brought back to Israel on a cart. It started to slide off the cart, and there was this guy that was manning the cart named Uzzah, and Uzzah stopped the ark he reached out his hand to try to prevent the ark from falling into the mud and you know what happened to him he died I remember hearing that story in like my family devotion time my dad was telling me when I was like you know second grade or something and thinking like what is this what is this why does that do that you you might be troubled by that story why is this guy trying to do a good thing right he's trying to keep the ark from getting muddy and yet he died. And, and I think that we, need to, we really want to understand the holiness of God and, and how it interacts with the sinfulness and the unholiness of, of humanity. It, it's really more of a question of ontology than a question of intentionality. And as I was thinking about this this week, this is a silly and horrible illustration, but it's the best I could come up with. So my daughter likes the movie Frozen. You know that movie? And there's a scene in the movie where there's this snowman, and this snowman really wants to go to summer. He wants to enjoy summer, and he sings this song all about summer. And it's funny, because it's ironic. It's a snowman, and he wants to enjoy summer. Of course, it's funny. Why? Because snowmen can't enjoy summer, because even though they may really want to, even though snowmen may love the summertime, they can never go near the summer because heat repels snowmen <laughs> and this is the point it, it's a question of ontology here holiness always repels unholiness that's the power in the presence of God holiness always wipes away unholiness, that's what I'm talking about this is the power of the presence of God it gets rid of unholiness, it gets rid of pain it gets rid of anything that is not the presence of God, it gets rid of anything that is not like God. And therefore, you see a big dilemma here. God is holy. We are not holy. God's holiness, his presence, is the only thing that can really heal us from our unholiness, from our separation. And so how can God's holiness be near an unholy people? And this is why we have the book of Leviticus. This is what the whole book of Leviticus is all about. It's it's answering this problem. How is God's holiness going to dwell among an unholy people to make them a people of his possession, to make them a holy people? And you might say, well, this is a nice little ancient problem. But no, I see this dilemma all the time. Holiness always repels unholiness, and the only thing that's going to make you holy is holiness. And so, when I see this all the time, when, when, when people start stepping away from the presence of God, when Christians start stepping away from the holiness of God, when they, when they begin to sin, when they begin to invite unholiness into their life, you know what you always see? You know what you always see? What you see, some of you, you, you see in this room, they, they step away from going to church <laughs> They step away from reading their Bible. They step away from Christian community. They step away from anything that might bring Christian conviction. Why? Because holiness repels unholiness. That unholiness that they love starts to melt away, just like the snowman. So, how do we, an unholy people, come near to the presence of God? And this is why we need the book of Leviticus. This is the great dilemma. And if, to some degree, all of that, I know you're thinking, oh man, it's gonna be a long sermon, all of that was the introduction, okay? <laughs> but don't worry, the, the main body will be shorter. I, but I, what I want to do today is to look at this book, as we kind of consider this grand narrative, to look at this book, and we're gonna look at the whole book, and again, don't worry, but to look at this book and see why it is helpful if anything, it answers this question for us. How can God's power, God's healing power, be among a people and not kill them? Now, modern people, people like us, sophisticated, educated Westerners like us, we oftentimes, modern people, we like to look down our nose a little bit at Leviticus, right? It's, it's a little weird, right? There's some gross things in there. There's some strange things in there. A lot of people don't really you know, we don't understand this book. That's ancient people. We've, we're more sophisticated than the kinds of practices that we see in Leviticus. And I think it's in large part because we, we don't understand the book. But what I want to say today is I think you actually understand the book a little bit better than you think. Like I said, Le- Leviticus is a book about how God's power can be among people and not kill them. And the book is split up into seven sections. Hopefully this will be helpful for you. Let's go to the next slide here. The book is split up into seven sections. The first section that appears in two different places, kind of the first and the last section, is all about ritual. It's all about these rituals, the sacrificial system, these festivals that the people of Israel had to follow in order that the presence of God could remain among them. The second, you know, Section, or sorry, the first is the first and the seventh. The second and the sixth section, they're all about priesthood and the priesthood of the people. These this chosen tribe among the people that would priest on behalf of the people. And it talks about what a priest has what a priest does and how a priest has to live, how a priest gains favor with God, walks in right step with God. And then the second and the sixth section of the book is all about purity. Uh, there's a lot of purity laws that talk about, um, you know, for example, what the people of Israel could and couldn't eat. And some of these seem kind of strange and bizarre. Some are about, you know, death and touching people and skin disease and bodily fluid. Uh, and then the second section over here is all about justice and morality and, and the kind of uh, what a moral society would really look like. And the big theme in this section is remaining ceremonially clean before God. So for example, there's this whole section on leprosy. And if someone had leprosy, you couldn't touch the leprous person. The person with leprosy actually had to tear their clothes and, and stay away from all people and actually yell out, unclean, unclean, don't come near me, don't touch me, because if you touched me, according to the law, you would become ceremonially unclean. And if you were unclean, you couldn't be in the presence of God. Now, this is interesting. It wasn't necessarily sinful to become unclean, But if you were unclean and went into the presence of God, you might die. So there was, there was, uh, there was consequences for being unclean. You couldn't go near the tent of meaning. Now again, modern day people will say, hold on, Jason. Priests, ritual, purity laws, these are archaic and strange things. They don't really relate to me. And what I want to say to do is, today is, yeah, I think maybe they do. You ever, um, you ever driving and you're, you're driving down the road and a guy speeds past you, like aggressively, dangerously so. You know what I'm talking about? When I used to live in Covington, I would drive up I-20 toward Atlanta and people, I-20 is a, it's crazy out there, okay? <laughs> if y'all ever go east of the city, it's nuts out there. People are just driving crazy out there. I remember one time this guy blew past me uh, in just a very reckless, very dangerous way. Well, then about you know four or five minutes later, three or four miles down the road, I see him, and guess what? He had gotten pulled over by a police officer, and there he was sitting on the side of the road. Now, what do you think I thought when I saw this guy sitting there? I didn't think, oh, poor guy. <laughs> you know? No, I thought, yes! <laughs> Finally, this guy got what he had coming to him. You see, I want you to hear this. There is a notion of external justice in all of us, right? We, we want justice, and we like to see justice. We like to see justice in action. But there's also a notion, if you're humble at all, there's also a notion of internal justice, of personal justice. You know, I had a friend get cancer about, you know, a year and a half ago. I called him up to check on him. He's okay now, but it was scary there for a little while. I called him up to check on him, and I said, you know, hey, you know, how you doing? And he said to me, I'll never forget it. He said to me, I know God is doing this to me because, and he confessed a sin to me. Now, I'm not not commenting on his theology, okay? In fact, I don't think that's what was, you know going on as jesus kind of uh, describes in the new testament but it was interesting to me why did he say that where did he get that notion he got this notion of look a bad thing is happening to me and he was humble enough to admit whether his theology was right or not he was humble enough to admit i'm not guiltless god is justified if he is doing this to me i'm not guiltless here If it has happening to me, what what I have done because of what I've done, this is fair. This is where the sacrificial system for the people of Israel was so important. It, It was a drama for them. It was a display to the people of a cost. God was showing them by this animal suffering before them that their sin had a cost about it. That their sin was weighty. This animal that was innocent was being sacrificed to pay for their sin. You know, we look down on the ancient people for these archaic practices, but they were really kind of onto something here. I had another friend who was struggling a little bit with pornography. And he heard this story, and and some of y'all that were here on September 30th, actually, we had a friend of ours come and she, if you didn't hear her story, you need to listen back on the podcast, September 30th. But she, um, she was saved from, from, she worked at a strip club. She was involved in being trafficked sexually. This has an amazing testimony of God's power. And she came to be a part of our church in Birmingham. We've seen God totally redeem this woman. And if you weren't here, I mean, she's just doing amazingly. But a buddy of mine heard this story. This is a few years ago when, when she was still at our church in Birmingham. And he was struggling a little bit with pornography at the time, and he heard her story, and he realized, wait a second, when I participate in this, I'm supporting an industry, the same industry, that was abusing this girl, this, 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 this real human <laughs> that I see. And, and it was the closeness of his sin. It was seeing the pain and the weight of his sin and effect in a real way that convicted him and, and, and healed him of that sin. This is the sacrificial system. It was an intention where the people would see the suffering animal. They would see that their sin had a weighty cost and it would purify them and bring them closer to God, and allow them to be near the presence of God. We also kind of look down on this, this idea of priesthood. But let me tell you what a priest is a priest is an advocate, you know, a priest is a go between. A priest is, is someone who speaks to God on behalf of man, Again, you can say that this seems a little archaic, seems a little old, until you realize that our whole system of justice, our whole system of employment, basically our whole system of relationship in so many ways depends on priesthood. Here's what I mean by that. When I was a uh, Younger guy, middle school or whatever, and I wanted to talk to a girl, or me and my buddies wanted to talk to a girl. We'd always send in another buddy first, right? And before we sent him in, we'd always say, "This was, this was." If you, if you're, you, you know, have any middle school kids in here? This line, I, would, I would always say, "Tell her I'm cool," as if him going and saying he's cool would be like, "Oh my gosh, I never saw that he was cool before." You know, so convincing. Hey, tell her I'm cool. Tell her I'm cool. Well, why did we do that? I needed a priest, right? The, pr- <laughs> the, pr- the presence of this girl was too weighty for me. I needed a go-between. I needed an advocate. And before you laugh, we do this all the time. Our whole legal system is set up on priesting. You know, when you, if you get in trouble for the law, you hire an attorney, you get an advocate, you get somebody to speak on your behalf. Our whole employment system, right? You have a list of references at the end of your resume. You call them up and they say, yeah, they can do the job. And you're like, well, I guess they can do the job. Our whole system of relationship in so many ways is built upon this idea of priesting. We need an advocate. And here's Leviticus. The presence of God you know i was intimidated by the presence of a little middle school girl the presence of god is among the people they needed an advocate they needed a priest they needed someone that could go and build the relationship and you know we may look you may look your nose down on the idea of these purity laws and if you ever read some of these laws they they are a bit strange i mean this was the kind of Leviticus was like the place where you looked when you're like in middle school because there's just some weird and kind of sexual stuff in here and you're like this, you know, you'd point to your buddies in the back of church and laugh. You know, inside church kid jokes here. But, <laughs> um, but it's not as strange as you think. It's, it's this idea of being pure in the presence of God. You know, we, we had, um, John Kellis had a parent-teacher conference on Friday And he's in pre-K, okay. And John Kellis, some of y'all know John Kellis, he's an energetic boy. Uh, He's a great boy, and he's amazing. But he's energetic, he's strong, he likes to, you know. And so, I'll be honest, I was really nervous going into this parent-teacher conference. You know, what was she going to say? Does John Kellis not pay attention? Is she going to start looking at me and be like, you're a bad dad? You know, are you not spending enough time with him? It's it's funny. You know, I, here I am. I was thinking about this this week. Here I am. I'm I'm intimidated to go into the presence of this 29 year old pre K teacher. <laughs> because I felt like I I felt like I hadn't done as good of a job as I should have done, as a dad. And, and don't you see, the presence of God was dwelling among the people. God, the Almighty the ruler of the universe, the one who spoke all things into existence, the one who has total control over everything physical and metaphysical, over every idea, over all of time, who completely controls your body and your soul, who can stand before him. And you might be thinking, you said there were 7 sections of Leviticus. You only covered 6. Well, Thank you, Eric, for helping us out here. What's the seventh section? Well, in the very middle of the book, there's this special section. It's about the Day of Atonement. Some of y'all heard about this, Yom Kippur. And on this day, as described in here, the high priest of all the people, one day a year, would go into the Tent of Meeting. He wouldn't just go near the Tent of Meeting, he would go into the place where the Spirit and the holiness and the power of God dwelled and he would take a sacrifice so see what we have going here we have a a priest going into the presence of God with a sacrifice with an unblemished lamb that he would sacrifice there and sprinkle blood on the ark of God and he would take blood from that lamb and put it with his bloody hands put it on the head of another lamb this is called the scapegoat the azazel and the, the azazel would be sent out And in a very meaningful way, he would confess the sin of the people as he placed his hands on the head of this lamb and then it was banished away from the presence of God to symbolize that the sin of the people had gone away from the presence of God so that they could be pure and enter into the presence of God and have the presence of God among them. It was this this kind of one day that kind of encapsulated everything else that was going on in the whole book. And all of this was a symbol of atonement. It was a symbol that the sin of Israel had gone out. The sin of Israel came with a great cost. The lamb was sacrificed, but then the sin had gone out. The law that was broken had been atoned for. The, the sin had been transferred rather, to the Azazel, and the sin of the people was banished into the wilderness so that they could be given They could be forgiven so that the presence of God could dwell among them and so that they could be healed. Now you might be thinking, well, this is all good and well for Israel. But what about us? Now I came here today not to get a Old Testament historical lesson. I came here today with a real need, pastor. I came here today with real heartache, with real sin that I'm trying to overcome with real pain in my life. This may be good for Israel, but what do you have for me? And the good news that I have for you is that God wants to heal you in the same way, only he wants to heal you in a better way. He wants to heal you by his presence. But God's presence for you today can be known and experienced in a more rich way than even these beloved people of God In the ancient times, in the Old Testament, you see at Christmas we celebrate, as I said before, the presence of God coming to us in Christ. But Jesus didn't just come in some arbitrary way that the presence of God might be. No, no, he came to fulfill all of this. He came to be the ritual sacrifice. What does John the Baptist say of him when he first comes onto the scene? Behold what? The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. It was a foreshadowing of what would happen to Jesus. The lamb that would be sacrificed. The lamb where the cost of our sin would be known. He came to be the priest. As the book of Hebrews says, he's a greater priest than even Levi. He came to go before the presence of God and be our go-between, to be our mediator. He came to make us pure. He came to make us pure. You know, I had Lauren read the passage in Mark, because I want you to see that that so much of what Jesus does, you know, you read these things and you're saying, oh, that's neat, that's interesting. No, so much of what he is doing is showing you something. He is fulfilling Levitical law. He's, He's showing Levitical law. What does he come to do in that Mark passage? He goes up to a leprous man. And according to the law, If Jesus was just a man and he touched a leprous man, then what would that make him? It would make him unclean. But what does Jesus do? He, because he is more than a man, because he is the God man, goes and touches the leprous man and makes him clean and purifies him. This is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to fulfill all of the law. He's come to fulfill all of the prophets. He has come to make peace between God and man. And so don't you see, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, if your life is with Christ, then you have been made so clean. In fact, the Bible says of you, if you believe in Jesus, you know how the Bible describes you? It describes you as The temple, which in this passage is translated, it describes you as the tent of meeting. The Bible says if you trust in Christ, you've been made so clean that now you're the holy place. That now you, by the work of Christ, are the place where the Spirit of God can dwell. God has come not to just be near us, He's come to indwell us. And by the Spirit's power, you can be healed. By the Spirit's power, he'll take away your anger. He'll take away your bitterness. He'll take away your jealousy. He'll take away your sin. And we'll be like, well, why do I keep struggling with it? Why doesn't it just happen? Why doesn't he do it? And you know, I, I, I don't have a particular answer to the, to, the, to the rate at which God does these things. But I can attest this with full confidence to the surety at which he does these things. And so keep plugging in. Keep pursuing him. Keep allowing his presence to heal you. Don't run away from his presence. In Christ, you've been made clean. So look to Christ and approach him. Look to Christ and draw near to him. Look to Christ and be healed by him. And and you know in terms of the outworking of this you know all I have time to say today is look if you if you've never looked at Christ if you've never trusted in him or right now if you're running from him come back to him if right now you're feeling conviction <laughs> if right now you're feeling that heaviness you know what that is you know what that is that's healing that's how the spirit heals He convicts us, he leads us to repentance and then he leads us to faith. He's healing you even now, so keep pursuing him. Keep plugging in. As Jason urged you earlier, keep plugging into community groups. Don't run away from the presence of God. In Christ, you've been made so whole and so clean that you can run right into it and know him. And this is a good Sunday toward the end of the year to make a commitment to to make, if, if church is kind of an irregular thing for you, to be here, to be near the presence of God to allow his truth, to allow his presence to heal. Let's pray. Before we begin praying, just as you have your heads bowed, look, if you've never trusted in Christ today, but you believe this, that you believe that Jesus is the great sacrifice who died for you, if you believe that God loves you and that he's pursuing you, then then I just ask you today to come near to him, to look to him, to repent. If God is laying conviction on your heart right now, that is evidence of his love. Repent of those things and know that the healing hands of Christ are there to forgive you and heal you. And if you have looked at Jesus and maybe not as consistently as you need to, not as faithfully as you need to, if you've found your heart looking off toward other things that you thought would heal you, But they have left you empty, then today turn. Turn to Him. In a few minutes, we're going to have a time of communion. And it's such a great re reminder of what God has done for you. It's a great drama of sacrifice, it's a great drama of love. And so, Father, I pray for these people, I pray for my own soul that your presence would, would work out of me right now, my sin and my weaknesses and my lack of faith, that your presence would work out of me right now, pain, unforgiveness, that your presence would work out of me and these people right now, Father, do your work, our lack of mission, our desire Lord to put ourselves in your place heal us Father please heal us by your presence now and Father I can ask for that I can ask that your presence would be known and felt and would be strong within me and among us Lord and not worry about dying even though I'm an unholy and sinful man I can ask for that because Christ has fulfilled the law Christ was the priest who is on the great day of atonement given the greatest sacrifice his own blood the perfect lamb to make him pure and unclean people pure and clean and so sin your presence now Lord may uh Holy Spirit come alive in our lives and heal us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041 or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com